Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shiel, being an incoming freshman next year at UCLA, also the co-host of this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience during the Watergate trial as the only woman on the trial team. Uh, I am also an MSNBC legal analyst and the co-host of this podcast, along with a long history in government. Today, we're joined by Audra Wilson. Audra is currently the president and CEO of the Schreiber Center on Poverty Law, an organization that focuses on achieving economic and racial justice. Uh, Before becoming president and CEO of Schreiber Center, Audra served as a deputy press secretary to then-state senator. Barack Obama's campaign was an adjunct professor at Northwestern Law School um, and served as executive director of the Illinois League of Women Voters. Um, Today, we have an exciting conversation planned uh, for you today. Um, We plan on talking about the importance of the work of the Shriver Center from its early role in the war against poverty to its current role on reducing the inequities and inequalities facing our country right now. Um, In addition to uh, her advice for my generation as we fight for equality and justice. But before we talk about the important work of the Shriver Center, I think our audience would like to hear something about its history, I have a long relationship with the Shriver Center and actually with Sergeant Shriver, its founder. Um, He was a partner. He was actually one of the name partners of the law firm I joined right after the Watergate trial ended, uh, Freed Frank Shriver Harrison Campbellman. Um, So I've known him for a long time. And I actually, my first campaigning since I was covered by the Hatch Act until I joined Freed Frank. Um, I couldn't campaign. That was my first campaign. Um, He was running for president for a short while uh, in 1976 while I was at the firm. So that was my first campaigning. Um, And so I I really had that long time experience with him. But in addition, I had more current um, connection. And I hope we can talk a little bit about that and see what you're still doing in the area. And that was when I was head of of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools, I worked with the Shriver Center on creating a bank at Curie High School. This wasn't just a play bank. It was an actual bank where the families uh, of the children at Curie High School could actually bank. And this was a largely unbanked community, so it was a great service. Plus, of course, we were teaching valuable career skills to the students who were involved in running the bank. So let's start with, though, who is Sergeant Shriver? Because to me, he's a real icon uh, and a quite interesting character. So um, I don't. I mean, I'll list some of the things that I know about him. Uh, of course, he's a relative of the Kennedys, and he was very influential in starting the Peace Corps, the Job Corps, Head Start, and he was an architect of the War on Poverty. He was director yes. of the Office of Economic Opportunity under uh, Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded Kennedy after he was assassinated. Um, and then, as I mentioned, he was the Democratic, uh, oh no, I, actually I didn't mention this. He was the Democratic 
party's nominee for vice president in 1972, uh, in which, of course, Richard Nixon won, um, which led to my involvement in Watergate. So I'm sort of glad they lost or I've <laughs> had that, but I'm, I'm joking. I am not at all happy that they lost. Um, he also was involved in the Special Olympics. He was ambassador to France. Um, I mean, he's quite a remarkable person. Did I miss anything? You you pretty much covered it all. I mean, he's he obviously, as you've described, I mean, this was a really amazing man whose impact on American life was and still remains very significant. Um, and obviously, he he's also the founder of the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services, which contemporarily is the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. So 53 years later, we are so proud to be able to carry on his legacy. Um, I do think it's important. Imagine also what his connection to Chicago is, because you're in Chicago. And I, I mean, everything I've mentioned, he, he grew up in Maryland um, and he obviously worked in Washington. But what's his connection to Chicago? Yeah, so, so, so Sarge actually did quite a bit of, of work and advocacy in the city of Chicago, um, and which is one of the reasons why we've been so connected to him. And I'm just so proud because we have a lot of... Um, um, of advocates and people that we so laud that we, you know, we always want to shout out our Chicago connections. So um, Sartre was actually here for many years um, uh, doing his advocacy. I think one thing that you had said earlier that it's really important to, to, to emphasize are the programs that were actually started um, through him um, and his, especially being at the head of the office of OEO, Economic Opportunity. So when you're talking about um, Job Corps, Head Start, um, and, and other programs that still exist today. And I think that's something that people actually lose sight of, the fact that um, these programs are still in existence today, and they were an integral part of this war on poverty. Right. And it was interesting because he was someone who very much was, um, you could say he, he didn't like bureaucracy. He thought it was wasteful and inefficient. Um, so it was interesting to be the head of an organ or the head of a department. But again, Having created these 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 anti poverty programs like Head Start, uh, Job Corps Vista, Volunteer in Service to America, for those of you who have heard of the Vista program, um, um, it was extraordinarily significant. Um, the Shriver Center actually, when I started in '98, uh, we were the we had gone from the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services and we had changed our name to the National Center on Poverty Law. But right around the time that I had begun, um, we we adopted the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, which I was very excited because that was the first time I had a chance to meet him. Oh. Um, and uh, he was also our first honoree for our first Shriver Gala mm. uh, that now bears his name at the time, it was just our, our National Center on Poverty Law um, annual gala. And he is just a really warm, uh, just uh, very gregarious, very outgoing person, just engaging personality. But what you could also sense was just how genuine he was um, and how much he believed in the mission of our of, our, of the organization. And um, it's so it's been an honor, quite frankly, to carry on his legacy. Thank you for that, because I agree completely. He was a kind, intelligent, caring human being. Um, and, and I think there's also another connection to Chicago because his family, of course, or, or the family of his wife owned the Merchandise Mart um, yes. in Chicago. So that brought him here, I believe, often. Yes. But So let's move on to some of the things that the Shriver Center is doing now. Uh, wh what would you say are some of the key issues you're dealing with and the, the programs that you're offering? 
So the Shriver Center, um, essentially, it's a multi-issue organization. But in a, in a nutshell, we lead the fight for economic and racial justice by litigating, shaping public policy, training advocates, and connecting people in the advocacy community. Our roots are based in community advocacy and connecting lawyers across the country. Um, and we do so because our hope is that by in this work, we're going to be able to build a future, a future that's free from poverty and racism and where everyone has equal power under the law. Now, the, the, the economic justice issues uh, speak for themselves. And again, they are born out of our work, you know, born out of the war on poverty and the work, that, the legacy that we're carrying on from, um, from Sartre Schreiber. The racial justice aspect of it has always been a part of our work, but not something that we had always talked about explicitly. But we've reached this point where we realize that we cannot talk about economic justice without acknowledging structural racism, because these are the, the systems that keep people mired in poverty. And so over the last few years, we've been far more explicit in our focus on racial justice and looking at all of our work through a racial equity lens. And that's also been an integral part of the training that we do as an organization, um, because we are training advocates across the country and helping them enhance the quality of their work by by teaching them how to filter their work through that racial justice lens. So that is what has made Shriver just even more formidable as, as, um, as a group of advocates and made us more impactful, not only in our work, but be able to help and support our networks. Let me ask you a couple follow-up questions yeah. on that. Um, first of all, who are the advocates? And you said you also do litigation. So two questions. One is, you know, who are the advocates? But uh, can lawyers volunteer to get involved with you? So, good question. So, as far as litigation, so we have different ways as, that we do our advocacy. Litigation has always been um, an integral part of our work. Um, and we have been doing for years and years a lot of, of, of class action litigation. But we've also been doing a lot of administrative advocacy as well. Um, and... Uh, and support of our clients. We're not a traditional direct service organization, so we are not doing necessarily the, the level of, of app, or, excuse me, litigation that you might see in, in a firm setting or a more traditional legal service organization. Um, we have reserved much of our litigation for class action and impact litigation. Um, but in terms of individuals who are working with us directly, we actually have been finding a lot of partnership and working closely with uh, uh, lawyers, pro bono lawyers, so attorneys who might be in large firms that with whom we have worked closely on our, our litigation. Um, so they've been our partners in our, you know, in, in litigation. Um, and that's how they've supported us. So it's not so much people volunteering for us necessarily, but us working collaboratively um, with our pro bono partners on, on aspects of our litigation. Um, you asked me advocates, also- Advocates, not the lawyers, but the advocates when you- The advocates. Advocacy. Who are the advocates? So that's really important because when we're doing training, our training is not exclusively for lawyers. Our training is for anyone that is doing the type of the, the anti-racism, anti-poverty work um, that we promote. And so though many people who are doing this training are lawyers, we do have non-lawyers who are doing this. Uh, so different types of, 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 of social justice advocates. And that's a really important thing because our work is enhanced by the work of, of, of non-lawyers. So that's why our training is not limited to lawyers. Um, but but I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are these advocates people who work for other organizations with the same mission, 
or are they just individuals who say, I'd like to get trained to be involved in this advocacy work? Generally speaking, they do work with other organizations. They work with different, all different uh, types of, of, of social justice organizations or legal service organizations. And our training happens all around the country. It is not limited to the state of Illinois. As a matter of fact, probably the vast majority of our training is outside of the state of Illinois. And we do so through our advocacy resource training program. We do, which runs a community lawyering program. We do um, also what's called RJI, our Racial Justice Institute, which is a signature um, piece of our of our uh, training, where we have a cohort of advocates from again across the country in all different types of organizations that um, that tr are trained for several months um, on anti poverty and anti-racism principles. And when they graduate, they become part of what we call our RJI, our Racial Justice Institute Network. So it's almost like a CLE for them. We continue to convene around subject matter areas to talk about the work that they do, um, again, through this racial equity lens, and then graduates are able to give each other support lens. And so for those who don't know, CLE, which you refer to, is continuing legal education. Then one, one other question at least at this point, uh, what do you think Sergeant Shriver would say about how the country is now, what, what we're going through now, um, and, and also about what the Shriver Center is doing to carry out his legacy? But, but I'd really be curious what you think he would think of our current political situation. It's a really interesting question because I have engaged in conversations with the family um, as well as the Sergeant Shriver Peace Institute um, and, and individuals there. And we've talked a lot about his legacy and kind of how he would regard the work that we're doing. From his family's perspective, and, and this was such a, uh, an honor to hear them say that, they really felt as though we were carrying on his legacy and they were um, pleased to see that. And so that is something that we take very seriously. And to know that the work that we do and the way that we do it is something that they support and they feel good about and they feel good to have his name attached to that was a huge um, endorsement for us. But I think thinking about what would he think about our work in the context of where we are right now, it's probably something similar to what many of us feel. And that is, <laughs> there's, there'd be some, while there's satisfaction to know that we're still fighting that good fight and as zealously as we are, I'm sure there'd be some disappointment that 53 years later, we continue to have these same conversations. Mm. That 53 years later, even though there have been ex huge gains that have been made in terms of lifting people out of poverty through many of these programs that, that were initiated by him and subsequent programs, that we still have not gotten to the root of what keeps people mired in poverty. And we still have not gotten to the root of dismantling those systems that keep people mired in poverty. So I think there'd be that, that, that kind of bittersweet, happy that we're still here and doing this work, but disappointed that 53 years later, we still have some of the same conversations that we had during his, his height of, of advocacy for poor people. I hope he would also be just proud that all of the Peace Corps and uh, Upward Bound and some of the VISTA, there are so many programs that have been valuable to the country 
Absolutely. But take it away, Victor. Yeah. I mean, before I get into my questions and kind of how the Shriver Center is confronting um, the structural racism that we face now, um, can you kind of, can you kind of talk about um, the role that students play with the Shriver Center and whether or not you recruit any students, if there's any involvement from my generation in terms of advocacy, because that is such a, a core tenet of um, your work? Yes. And it's, it's, I'm excited because we have many opportunities to engage much younger generations in the work that we're doing. Um, and even, it's interesting, I am an alumnus uh, of the Shriver Center, and to, to come back to the organization and see just even among our, our team, uh, the wide range of ages and perspectives that are represented, I think that so enhances the quality of our work. I can almost tell by just closing my eyes, um, and then just listening to a conversation, whatever we're talking about, like you can you can feel the the the, the difference in approaches and and perspectives, and you know immediately you can tell where people are, kind of where they fall generation wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important um, because it, the younger people that are within our organization have really pushed hard on the type of advocacy that we're doing, kind of questioning. You know, we, we have these same issues that many social service organizations have. You know, immediate action versus incrementalism. You know, so so what does it mean to be pushing hard to be a kind of organization that's out there, the vanguard, and raising a lot of noise and or making a lot of noise and making immediate demands versus an organization that traditionally has been more kind of that slow but steady pushing. You know, and and, and understanding that some victories are going to be um, long in the making, and and understanding why incrementalism exists, and I think it's an important balance that they provide because. You know, you need the push from younger people to be like, hey, listen, don't become complacent. You know, we're in a new era right now and we have to to constantly innovate and think of different ways that we do our advocacy. But on the other hand, you need older voices to say, now, listen, not everyone can, not everything can be fixed through a march and, and making a lot of noise. Some things might, you have to actually orchestrate. They may take five or 10 years. So you need that balance. And I think that we have interns that we bring in. Um, uh, now our interns are, tend to be, they're, they're legal interns. So these are folks who are in their early twenties or so, but they are in law school and they're, they're joining us. Although we do have some non-law um, school interns who have been coming in. So um, younger generations that have been working with us directly. And then we also work a lot with our um, partners outside of the organization. Um, and though they are represented by, they're, they're in particular organizations, but it still gives us opportunities to speak to all different types of people of all different ages, different stages that really inform the work that we do so that we're not that ivory tower organization that sometimes organizations of our size and our stature have a tendency to be. Yeah, and this is obviously an intergenerational podcast, and Jill and I, we tend to agree on most issues, um, which, which is which is a good thing, um, but there is kind of, you're seeing this play out, I think, in real time after Joe Biden won the election. I think a lot of progressives who tend to be my generation or younger generations um, are kind of resisting what the Biden administration, which tends to, I guess, focus more on tradition and, um, and traditional politics. Um, you're kind of seeing those battles play out in general, but I guess for you kind of leading the Schreiber Center and kind of seeing all of this involved with the Me Too era, with Black Lives Matter, the um, increase of social media. As a leader, h- how do you balance the pressures from many activists for immediate results and um, the sense of urgency against, like you said, making incremental incremental progress? It's not easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, the best thing, and I, I am 
very new in my tenure, but just from from all of my experience that I'm bringing into to the Shriver Center now, especially having worked for the U.S. House of Representatives, which was really super important in the work that I'm doing because I had to listen to different constituencies. I had to listen to people from all walks. I had to listen to people who were very supportive of my member of Congress and who never would have voted for her uh, under any circumstances, but you still, we represented them. And you have to be able to listen and to find, you know, where is that common ground? Because notwithstanding a lot of the rhetoric and the noise, there are a lot more things that we have in common. And so we would try to find those common themes um, uh, and really play upon those common themes in our messaging. And we knew that we had to start to balance. There were some things that you know you're just not going to win. You're just you're not going to make everybody happy. So you have to find what your voice is and be consistent about that. I'm very big about making sure that when I'm making decisions, they are informed decisions. When I'm making decisions for the organization, I am tapping into every resource we have, including our community advisory board, our peers, other folks that have disparate in, um, perspectives about things, and bringing those all to the table as I start to make a plan or with my team about how we're going to move forward. Some ways we're going to be pushing that envelope. You know, we're going to be pushing harder than we might normally think to do, um, coming out of our comfort zone a little bit. And then there might be some places where we, we recognize that, no, we think that slow and steady wins the race, and we're kind of ready to kind of, you know, hold our backs up a little bit and understand that there might be some of the people who criticize that approach and think it's not, you know, it's not intense enough. And that's okay. I just want to make sure that I am evaluating everything and, and making sure that I'm, I'm listening to all different voices when I'm making decisions about how best we need to move an issue forward. And depending upon the issue, quite frankly, will depend upon the approach. We're not static. Yeah. And I think that's really important for my generation, at least, you know, as we approach college, as we come out of college, um, as we head into the real profession where many of us might, you know, carry those leadership titles to really approach things, find common ground, um, adapt to situations and, you know, really be that good leader. And I think you set a great example for that. Um, let, let's move on to our last question before we kind of end this podcast. But now that we are living in the era where, you know, Biden's about to take office, Trump is about to leave, um, what do you think the Biden administration should do to fulfill the mission of the Shriver Center in terms of achieving racial and economic justice? Is there, you know, anything you would say to the incoming administration in terms of kind of how they should combat these issues? Well, this sounds so obvious, but the, the number one priority of the incoming administration is to get a hold of this pandemic. You know, we, I'm excited to see that there, um, the vaccine is on the horizon. Um, I'll be excited to see what the plan will be in terms of distribution of the vaccines, um, because that is so important, especially because a disproportionate number of black and brown people um, in the state of Illinois and across the country have been impacted um, by the pandemic, um, not only health-wise, but economically. It has been a huge, huge dis um, detriment to those communities. And, and COVID has, quite frankly, exposed the depths of our structural racism, our racial inequity in this country. So that's one of the, the first things that the administration has to do, and obviously, you know, it is, it is already gearing up to do so. Then it's going to have to really be focusing on the economic fallout from COVID, quite frankly, has yet to be even, you know, to seen just, just how serious this is. We know how many people have lost jobs. We know how many individuals are, are underemployed or unemployed. 
so many of these these kind of relief programs and, and provisions that have been put in place are due to expire by the end of the year. And that's something even before the administration begins. And so there's already a lot of consternation about that. But we are so focused on that because, again, they disproportionately impact the, the very communities that we serve. So getting these things under control more in the short term is going to be important for us to lay the foundation for what needs to happen over the long term. We must dismantle the systems that keep people oppressed in poverty. We have to. And we can use COVID as an example of why these systems and how they keep people um, depressed how they keep people down. Um, and so using COVID as an example of that, you know, our mission is to really once and for all and very directly attack those systems and dismantle them uh, and make those demands of the administration. And many advocates have been doing this um, and making these demands. And so we are we're certainly no different. Yeah, for sure. And I think what gives me hope, at least, at least in kind of this um, period between now and the inauguration, is just who they've already announced to fill those um, positions. We have um, someone like Nira Tandon, who is going to be the Office of uh, Management Budget uh, nominee. And she kind of, I think she tweeted um, the other day that she has first-hand experience with food uh, food stamps and kind of these programs. So um, that's nice to see. So is, you know, Cecilia Roos, who's going to be the chair of the um, Council of Economic Advisors. So a lot of these positions, I think, do should give us hope that um, we will have people in these positions that um, kind of have direct experience with that and can make informed decisions based off of we're very experience. excited about that. We're very excited about the many of the appointments that have been made, the experience that they have. Some people worry about status quo, and I'm like, but in a time like this, this is where experience can really come in handy. Um, it's not just about chronological age. It's about experience. It's about know-how. It's having that longevity. I think that's that's something that we could really use right now. So I am very excited also just to have the different perspectives. You have individuals who filter things through a different lens, and they're going to be able to better represent some of the very concerns that we have from community people from different communities, particularly communities of color. So I think that's going to be such a, a, a wonderful thing for the administration, and I'm hoping that it'll really enhance our advocacy and our efficacy in our work. For sure. That's a great answer because certainly from my perspective, I think experience really matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, on that subject, I'm thinking of Victor, who I try to always mentor and advise, uh, and I'm always looking for other points of view. So let's talk about your extension to the role you're in now. You started as a young attorney at the Shriver Center. Um, You came from the um, League of Women Voters, Illinois League of Women Voters, to now head up the Shriver Center. Um, But tell us what you did in between and um, weave into that if you have any advice for Victor and his generation. build in also, if you can remember all these, and if not, I'll remind you, um, something about for anyone who's interested in doing the kind of work that the Shriver Center does, what advice do you have for them on how to get involved? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate um, to have had the trajectory that I have. Um, you know, I, I am I'm a, a, an attorney. I, you know, I have the benefit and the privilege of having had that, that education. Um, and my work, not only so Shriver laid the foundation. Let me just be very clear. Um, it, for me, it was I am I'm a child of immigrants, and 
it was important to me to think that in, in this amazing country like the United States, where the law is is it's woven in our fabric, it's, it's it's an essential part of American life, and to think that there were so many individuals that were not able to access the legal system, um, and that was one thing that had motivated me to become a lawyer. Um, but I I say that just to say that there's all different types of advocacy. Um, I became a, a a legal advocate with my Juris Doctor, but doctorate. But there are are so many different people that I've met over the years who have been amazing leaders in their communities. They have been extraordinarily influential, and they've been motivated by just the conditions that they saw in their communities. Um, now, it helps that they had a, a good, strong personality and outgoing. They weren't afraid to ask questions. They weren't afraid to introduce themselves to individuals and say, here's what I'd like to do. Um, but I want people to understand that there's all different ways that you can be a leader and activist in your community. It doesn't necessarily have to be the formal route that I, that I took in becoming a lawyer. Um, but, you know, there, there, is, there are opportunities for everybody, quite frankly. But for me personally, Shriver really laid the foundation. And, and it opened doors that perhaps would not have been opened had I not had the experiences I did at Shriver. So the opportunity to work as a deputy press and policy director for President Obama when he ran for U.S. Senate came from the fact that we drafted a lot of his signature legislation when he was a state senator in Illinois. Shriver um, wrote a lot of his signature legislation. Um, and so that's how I actually got to know a President Obama. Um, I also had the opportunity, speaking of being very young, as soon as I started practicing, I actually started teaching law. I started teaching a, an introduction to poverty law course, and I was probably about 27, 28 years old when I was doing this. So for as long as I had been working as Shriver, I was also teaching, which was a really cool opportunity that I had. And every position that I've had since Shriver has been as a consequence of the one that I had before. So you know, I was just very fortunate that, you know, not just the right place in the right time, but I think the good work that I was able to do um, allowed me to meet some really great people. And then my personality was one to ask a lot of questions and seek mentorship. And that was what opened doors for other things. Um, one thing that I would tell Victor, um, I think in people of Victor's age, we throw that word mentorship around a lot. You know, mentorship is important. You know, you've got to find a mentor. And then we also throw around the word networking. You have to be able to network. But we don't always define what that means. We don't define why mentorship is so important and, and what it can look like. And we don't always talk about what does it mean to actually network. So one of the things that I do as now I am in a more mentor role is I talk to people about what is what do I mean when I talk about networking? Working. What does it mean about making relationships, establishing relationships, and getting to know people, um, and having people who look very different than you do, and come have different walks of life and different backgrounds, and getting to know them, and asking for their guidance? That's going to be so important to you. You're going to have mentors of all different ages, um, stages, uh, backgrounds. Um, you have to be very deliberate in what it is that you're seeking from the individuals that you're you're speaking to, and that's connected to some of the networking as well. Networking is just broadening that, that pool of individuals that you come in contact with, and but you're trying to get something from them specifically. You're, you're kind of gleaning information. You're gleaning that experience that they've had and so, so that you can learn from that. That is such an important thing for you to do, Victor, I would say, um, and for anybody um, who really aspires to really be impactful in whatever it is they decide to do, or even as they're figuring out what's next for me, don't be afraid to ask those questions. 
many of us, particularly a, a lot of um, young people of color, who may not have had the privilege that I did of being able to get a graduate degree, may not necessarily have those sorts of individuals in their immediate family to talk to. But that's why it's so important for them to go outside of their kind of families and seek mentorship and seek guidance in some other places. Um, and then ask, you know, is there anyone else that you suggested I speak to? Um, and really take that seriously. Get as much as you possibly can. Because one thing, and I know, Jill, you could certainly appreciate this, what we can do um, as people who are older and are mentoring is that we can let you know, like, <laughs> here's some things you might want to think about and you might want to avoid. If, if I had it to do again, <laughs> here's what I would tell you to do. And that's one of the first questions that I would ask my mentor. You know, what would you do differently <laughs> as you're advising me now, you know, so I can possibly avoid some of those pitfalls? And I've gotten some really invaluable advice. And I'm sure I've been able to ascend much faster because I actually took their advice instead of being sort of stubborn, like, oh, I'm going to do it my own way. <laughs> so I think that's really important. It might be interesting, Victor, to have a, a show specifically about mentoring yeah, and networking yeah. because oh, sure. those are skills that will change not only your expertise within a field, but also, sorry, but also your career path. Um, so that's a good place to end. Yeah. And thank you, Audra, for all the information and for the good work you're doing at the Shriver Center. Good luck to you. I hope people have learned something about it and will get involved in the work that the Shriver Center is doing. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.